This morning we, as we look at as we look at Second Kings twenty one, as we look at Manasseh and Ammon, we have the story of two wicked sons. Two wicked sons. Manasseh, of course, was the son of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah was not wicked at all. Which isn't to say that he was perfect, of course. What father ever has been except our Heavenly Father? And what a gift it is that we have our perfect Heavenly Father. But it's also a gift that he has given us earthly fathers. Earthly fathers like Hezekiah who was a great king in the line of David physically, but also in the line of David spiritually, obedient to God, leading his people in holiness and in reformation to repentance, to prayer, to destroying their idol. Good leader does. This is what it means to have a wonderful earthly father. Because the king is the father not just of Manasseh, the king is the father of the whole nation, isn't he? And so, as Hezekiah leads, wouldn't it be wonderful if his son who came up after him followed in his footsteps Wouldn't that be a glorious thing for one king who was holy to have his son standing on his shoulders, walking in the same path of service to God, of holiness, of obedience. And yet that's not what we have after Hezekiah. We have no reason to believe that it's Hezekiah's fault. Perhaps there were failings that he had. But Manasseh, who begins to reign at 12 years, probably as a joint king with his father, because this is the way the numbers indicate if you look at the way, if you, if you try to do the math, and I, I never try to do the math, I just read what people have said who've done the math, because it always, I always get lost trying to do the math. But yeah, the, the way he, the number of years that he reigned doesn't make sense unless he was co-regent with his father, and we've seen this several times in the book of Kings. Too much outdoors yesterday. So he was reigning almost certainly together with his holy father, Hezekiah, the good king, the one who we we want Manasseh to be just like, right? I mean, you can see the potential. For one good king to follow another good king, 
like Solomon, who wasn't unmitigatedly good, but at least he was good enough that we see the, the, the continuation of the work of his father, right? The building of the temple. The work that his father David had given him to do, that God had given him to do. It's this beautiful, glorious thing, and the kingdom ends up in an even better position under Solomon than it had under David. It's a sweet and joyful thing to see such obedience from kings. And we don't get that with Manasseh. Just like Hezekiah wasn't like his father, so Manasseh isn't like his father. So you go from bad king and you swing that pendulum far to Hezekiah, the good king, right? And then Manasseh. And the pendulum swings back the other direction and it keeps swinging and it keeps swinging and it keeps swinging until the pendulum just breaks. And God says, all right, that's it. That's enough. And of course, Manasseh's son Ammon walks in his father's footsteps just like we wish that Manasseh had done with Hezekiah, walking in Hezekiah's footsteps. But now we don't want Ammon to walk in Manasseh's footsteps because Manasseh's footsteps were terrible footsteps. So we have two wicked sons. One doesn't walk in his father's path and the other does walk in his father's path and they're both wicked. Some of you have had wonderful, faithful, godly fathers and some of you have not. Some of you, I'm calling you to walk in your father's footsteps and to improve, to stand on his shoulders and to go further. And some of you, I'm calling to reject the path that your father is on and has been on and to go another way. To turn aside. To walk in the way of righteousness. Why does Manasseh turn away from his father's faithful obedience to the Lord? Why does Manasseh not have a life of prayer to his God the way that his father did? We're not told. Hezekiah isn't blamed. We're just told how terribly wicked Manasseh is. But I want you to think about this question. <clears throat> Why did he do it? We read of his wickedness and it's impressive how wicked he was, right? How many things he got into that, yeah, some of them we've seen plenty of times and others 
Well, I don't remember reading about a king doing that. Mediums and spiritists, that hasn't, you know, we haven't seen a king do that since Saul. I was thinking about that question and I began to think about his life under his father Hezekiah, right? Probably co-regent with him for some number of years. And of course, we've studied Hezekiah and we have that question of what's going to happen after Hezekiah answered. We've already seen what's coming, right? God has said that his sons are going to be taken away. Now, if you were the son of Hezekiah and you heard that prophecy of what's coming, you've got to decide whether you're going to follow after the Lord or whether you're going to try to prevent what's happening some other way. You think you can get what you want by doing something else. Perhaps he decided that he needed to take control so that the disaster that God had promised would not come upon him. You can see that temptation, right? You can, you can feel, you can, you, you can feel the like, I don't know that I want to serve this God. And he said, this is what's coming. I, 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 let's see if we can find a way around this. I don't want God's judgment. And so instead of praying to God like his father did, instead of relying on him and his mercy, he looked to any way he could guarantee what he wanted to happen. Why else do you sacrifice your own children? Why else do you consult mediums and spiritists? Why else do you engage in the fertility cult? These are the things that he gave himself to, right? What is the goal? It's not just for fun, right? It's because he has things he wants. It has, he, he has a plan. He has a goal for what his kingdom is going to be like. And he needs to know, well, should I, should I go to battle or not? Right? These are the... Well, let's not ask God, because we've turned away from Him, but we still need an answer. We don't want to go into disaster in battle, so let's consult the augurs, right? These are all ways that we look to guarantee that we get what we want. We turn aside from God and we refuse to accept His plan and His commands so that we can guarantee that we get our plan. We get what we want, not what He wants. It's my will be done, right? That's Manasseh's prayer. And who does he pray it to? Everything and anyone and anything that he thinks could potentially have and influence.
And then, what happened? He was punished for his sins, right? He certainly wasn't punished for the sins of his father, was he? You have that, that promise to Hezekiah that his sons will be taken away, right? That his treasures will be taken away. And, <clears throat> and we think, he prays and, okay, fine, your sons will. Well, that's not very fair. And I think that's one of the temptations that Hezekiah faces. Well, that's not, that doesn't sound very fair to me. Hezekiah isn't punished for, I mean, Manasseh isn't punished for Hezekiah's sins. Manasseh is punished for Manasseh's sins. And yet, it's this strange thing. A 55-year rule. 55 years. Under such a wicked king. It's like God allowed Manasseh to prove that controlling our own destiny is possible. But I've already given it away a little bit. Manasseh actually was punished. It's not mentioned here. His punishment. But in 2 Chronicles 33 we see that the Assyrians dragged him away with hooks. Now, guys, that sounds bad. Be dragged away with hooks. That's not what we want, is it? <clears throat> and when he faced that discipline from the Lord, he finally repented. Again, it's not recorded in, in Kings. It's recorded for us in Chronicles that he humbled himself and he repented. This most wicked of kings who goes far beyond what Ahab had done, who leads the people to be worse than the Amorites who were so bad that God removed them from the face of the earth in his judgment, in his wrath. And what does, what does Manasseh do? He finally repents. So why isn't it recorded in Kings? It's pretty important, right? Why isn't it recorded in Kings? Because the point of Kings is to show what is happening, bore personal fruit, yes. But did it bring any fruit of repentance in his son Ammon? No. And more to the point, it was because of Manasseh's sin and the people under him at that time the people of Judah, that the coming wrath of the Lord was promised. His own personal repentance was too late 
for the salvation of the people of Judah. And the people of Judah, we have no record of their turning away from Manasseh and his wickedness. Rather, we see that Manasseh led them into wickedness, seduced them, it says, into following after these other gods, even though they had just had Hezekiah, the faithful ruler. Helpful to look to history and to learn from the mistakes that others have made, right? It's an important thing that we ought to do regularly. And here we are, we're looking at at a, a history, right? A history of a people. And... If I were to ask you whether Hezekiah's reign was successful or not, we've just gotten done studying it, you'd have to say yes, right? Have to say yes. And yet, often in history what we do is we look at the outcome a little bit longer term, right? We say, well, you know, It looked good, it looked promising, but look at what happened afterwards. And so, I want to use this to give us a little bit of pause, a little bit of hesitance in judging our fathers who have gone before us in the faith because of what happened afterwards. Okay, look at Scotland. Scotland is terrible. It's a terrible nation. I don't know if you know this. It's incredibly wicked. It's given over to its sin. And it had a wonderful, wonderful history of the Reformation, right? We've got Knox there. We've got such beautiful things coming out of Scotland 500 years ago, and you can look back and you say, yeah, but look what happened. I don't really place a lot of, uh, you know, it it looked like it was a good plan, but it didn't turn out too good in the end. there, There was no lasting fruit. And I say, well... You know, we've got, we've got some examples of that in the Bible too. So let's just be a little bit careful to not judge that they were wrong what they were doing because it didn't last more than a couple of generations. Sometimes what God is showing us is that in spite of the wicked rulers, He is... In control, and and in spite of the faithful, godly rulers, he is looking at the hearts of the people, and the hearts of the people here, the history of the people of the Lord is from the time of Exodus until Manasseh. What? 
continuously provoking God to anger. That's what it says. Continuously provoking God to anger over and over and over and over. And you get to Manasseh, you've just come out of Hezekiah, and what were the people supposed to learn from Hezekiah? The same thing that Manasseh was supposed to learn from Hezekiah, right? To be people of prayer, to be people of obedience, to worship the Lord and Him only, to do away with the idols. And and they did learn it from Him. He taught them. They went out under His command and they pulled down the high places for crying out loud. They learned it. He made sure they learned it. They were taught it. But did they continue to walk in it? Not even one more generation. They immediately provoked the Lord to anger. Why did the people go along with Manasseh's idolatry? Allowing themselves to be seduced by it. It's like asking the question, why did Manasseh turn away from Hezekiah's leading, right? Why did the people turn away from what Hezekiah had led them into? Perhaps they were just sick of obeying God. Felt like too much work, too much of a burden. They wanted some... Some of the pleasures of this life that God hadn't given them. Or they wanted some of the pleasures of sin that God forbids us from. Perhaps they just wanted to do what they wanted to do again. To not be under God's will, but my will. My will be done. At any rate, we see verse 9, they did more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. And what we see here is something that is very instructive to us about people who have received the gift of a faithful father leading them into righteousness and holiness. If they reject what he has taught them, what does their life look like? If they determine to go into sin, that they throw off all restraint. And they often go further than even the unbelievers go into sin. I don't remember what the quote is from. That the atheist is always the half-Christian gone mad. Atheist is always the half-Christian gone mad. That's what we see here. They've become atheists. Even the world isn't generally filled with atheists, right? You go around and 
you talk to people in this town, they may claim to be Christians, they may not claim to be Christians, but even the ones who don't do that, and there's no reason, rhyme or reason to what they say they should or they shouldn't do, right? You know, well, yeah, I believe in abortion, no, I don't believe in adultery, yeah, I do believe in, you know, whatever. You, you never know what you're going to get. They have no basis for morality except for their conscience, which they've seared, right? But for the Christian to throw off his conscience, which has not just been informed by nature, but has been formed by God's word and by the testimony of his father, right? To throw that off requires you to not just sear your heart and your conscience, but to cut it out and throw it away completely. And so you throw yourself headlong into sin. Things that your father never would have thought possible for you to give yourself to. Not all at once, typically. But soon, there's nothing that you won't give yourself to. Even the idiocy of mediums and spiritists, right? And, and that is truly idiotic. What else do you have left? You got nothing. I guess I'll consult the horoscope this week because I don't know what I should do. You think, well, I'll never be an idiot. I'm just going to give myself to what I want to give myself to. And I say, that is idiot. That's you. That's when, you're, when you do that. That's the dumb. That's where it starts. And okay, maybe you won't ever read your horoscope. And, and you're going to hold that up as though like, yeah, yeah, so I'm still okay. No, you're not. You're giving yourself to sin. That's the stupid thing you don't want to do in the first place. Because it always leads to discipline. It always leads to wrath. It always leads to judgment. It always leads to misery. Satan wants us to fall into sin like Manasseh in spite of Hezekiah as our father because he hates us. Not because he wants us to have a good time. Not because he wants us to be having blessings and, and, and glorious gifts that he has to give. Remember he says to Jesus, I have all the kingdoms of the world. I'll give them to you. Just bow down and worship me. Would Jesus have ended up with all the kingdoms of the world if he had? Satan's a liar. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. He's got all the kingdoms and every knee will bow before him and every tongue confess that he is Lord. You think you're going to get what you want by running into disobedience? It never, ever, ever happens that way because Satan is just a liar. He is, well, 
what he sometimes tries to convince us God is. Which is a vindictive, arbitrary meanie who loves to build us up just so that he can tear us down. Who loves to dangle the carrot for us. Look at what I can give you. Won't it be wonderful? Follow me over here. And you fell off a cliff. And you're looking up. And there's the carrot. And Satan's waving down at you. Have a nice trip. This is all in the text. Did you, not- did you notice that part in the text? It is. Verse 5, he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. He made his son pass through the fire, practiced witchcraft, used divination, dealt with mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. All of that is him running after the carrot, the promise. You can have what you want. And the people ran him. They threw off all restraint. And so, yes, Manasseh receives the discipline of the Lord and he repents and praise God for that, for his sake. But what does God say in this chapter? He says, okay, here comes my punishment. And it's going to be severe. Why? Because of their continuously provoking God to anger since the days of Egypt. Because they refuse his blessings. And insist. He says, okay. You don't want blessings? I won't give you blessings. I will give you what you're running after. You have refused to have me? Remember, he says, all these promises, if they'll walk in his commands, and if they'll have him as their God, he will bless them. He will be among them. They have the temple. It has the the very mercy seat. Enthroned between the cherubim is the Lord their God. He is among them. And they say, well, let's, let's worship the stars here in the temple. Not God. And so they refuse to have him. And what is the judgment going to be? The first thing we're told about the judgment is that it is going to be shocking. It's going to be shocking. 
So shocking, in fact, that anybody who hears about it, their ears are going to tingle. Both, both ears are going to tingle. You ever had that before? Watching a scary movie, it's like, or you're in the woods, and all of a sudden you think, somebody could be behind me. <laughs> I'm going to run. At night, of course. That's when that happens, right? You guys know that feeling, right? Hair stands up on your neck, and it's like, whoa. Or you hear or you read a news article about something horrific happening, and you're just like, oh, it's too terrible to even think about. And it's not somebody you know. It's just, it's just too terrible to even think about. You know, why is this on the news? Well, because same reason that we like watching horror movies, right? We're perverse. And yet, it is helpful for us understanding what it is to have both our ears tingle, isn't it? This judgment will be shocking. From the Lord faithfully providing for and protecting His people to something totally different. And what will it be? It'll be like what happened to Israel. What's happened to Israel? Israel is in captivity, exiled from their land, no longer under God's protection, no longer under his provision. It'll be like what happened to Ahab, the house of Ahab. What happened to the house of Ahab? You guys, we've studied that. Remember that, right? It's not too far back for you to remember. Dead. Killed. Wiped out. All of it. The 70 sons, him, his wife, The birds, the dogs. This is what he's bringing to Judah. What will it be like? It'll be like what you do with the leftover crap you don't want on your plate at the end of dinner. You dump it out. You wipe it off. And it's gone. And that's what he's going to do with the land of Judah. Which means, what's the stuff he doesn't want? The people. That's who's going to get wiped out of the land. He's going to pick up the land of the Jews. He's going to turn it upside down. And all the people are going to fall out. And he's going to wipe it and make sure there's none left. The end. Why? Because they're making the plate dirty. And he wants the plate clean. That's what we do with dirty plates. We wipe them. We get rid of all the dirty stuff. And they are polluting the land. 
Blood is flowing through the streets of their cities. And he's sick of them. He's sick of them doing that. And Ammon, his son, comes. And he doesn't even learn from his father's punishment and repentance. He just continues in it. And he gets assassinated. And you think, well, you know, isn't that probably what should have happened? Maybe. The people of the land make sure that justice is done to the assassins, though. And you know what? We have this really weird, cool thing coming next. We've got another son who doesn't follow in his father's footsteps. Josiah. And you can look forward to him all week. Steps, do we? And crazy thing of crazy things, we're going to have this glorious reversal again. Instead of a terrible reversal, we're going to have a glorious reversal. But Ammon doesn't learn. So what kind of son are you going to be? I haven't talked about Josiah enough to, for you to see it, right? But you know there's the possibility of what kind of son are you going to be? The obedient son or the wicked son? Here we have two wicked sons. And we think of our nation and obviously we ought to have great fear of the Lord. Because the Bible says that approximately 15,000 times, right? But also because we see the history of what happens to nations that give themselves to bloodshed. And we have his word explaining what will happen. And so what is our land? Our land is filled with bloodshed and that's of God's wrath against us as a nation. Oh, let us pray that we have not. But one thing is for sure. We can't blame the Supreme Court anymore, can we? You can't just blame Manasseh for the wickedness in Judah, can you? The people have gone along with it willingly. And here we are as a nation having gone along willingly with the Supreme Court, and God takes away that excuse. Now, what are we going to do? Roe versus Wade is gone. So now we find out. Will we repent? Or will we double down on wickedness? May God grant mercy to our nation, to our state. Because if America falls under God's judgment, it will be shocking. Right? Because we all believe what President Biden said. 
We're the most powerful nation, not just in the world, but in the history of the world. He's not afraid of God. Are you?